I was brought up to respect women. And uh, <clears throat> I've never lost that respect. I've added to it. I've contributed to it. It's the middle of the night in New York City. And Bob Guccione, the controversial founder and longtime publisher of Penthouse magazine, is being interviewed on the CBS show Nightwatch. Nightwatch was an overnight news show that aired from 2 to 6 in the morning, a time when you could talk more freely about topics like sexual desire and porn on network TV. I think that uh, if you are looking at a woman's anatomy, it must be beautiful in all of its parts. Uh, we, we cannot take one part of the anatomy and say that this is vulgar or obscene and that the rest of it is okay, the rest of it is decent. That just simply doesn't work. Since you were on, on At the time of this interview, Bob Guccione is one of the richest men in the world. He's on the Forbes 400 list, one of the most powerful publishers in America, back when publishers had real power. And he's not humble or shy about any of it. I'm a workaholic. I work day and night. I work seven days a week, at least 20 hours a day. I sleep an average of three hours a night. And uh, I don't go anywhere socially. I do not surround myself with celebrities. I'm not starstruck. Bob's wearing a creamy white silk shirt that's unbuttoned nearly to his navel. His chest hair is out. His skin's over tan. There are a dozen or more gold chains around his neck. Though the interview takes place in the early 80s, his look is full disco. He's the picture of 70s masculinity, even a caricature of it. Uh, I've got a good reputation with the girls that I've always worked with in the past. Mm-hmm. You look after our girls very carefully. Uh, the host of Nightwatch is longtime anchor Christopher Glenn, who looks particularly juxtaposed next to Bob, like a Clark Kent stand-in, a square. Glenn, like most journalists at this time, is trying to knock Guccione down a notch, corner him on a number of fronts. Since you um, um, started uh, working in the area of, quote, men's magazines, unquote, uh, ha- has your personal attitude about women changed at all? A lot of people say you're just an exploiter of women. Well, you know, they can say what they like. My attitude toward women, uh, if anything, has grown more respectful over the years. In what ways? Well, I've come to understand them a lot better. When I, I produced a women's magazine some years ago called Viva, which was very successful with the readership, The magazine he's talking about, Viva, was a splashy but little-known feminist porn magazine Bob published a decade before this interview, from 1973 until he was forced to fold it in 1978. In addition to its groundbreaking, full-frontal male nudes, Viva was smart and cool. It treated its readers like they had brains, publishing work by writers like Nikki Giovanni, Renata Adler, and Erica Jong. And it was stylish. Anna Wintour was actually Viva's fashion editor from 1976 to 1978. Viva was a reflection of its time, a direct product of the 70s sexual revolution. But maybe even more importantly, the women's liberation movement. There is a serious questioning of the role of women in our society. What do you think men are doing wrong? They're in charge. What do we want? Liberation! Viva came out 50 years ago, and its story has more parallels to the issues around sexual liberation that we're all still grappling with today than I could have possibly imagined. But still, almost no one remembers it. And if they do, they get the story wrong. They turn Viva into a joke about dicks, fashionable feminism plus penises wrapped up in a blousey pussy bow. Cue the bow chicka bow wow music. 
the end. It's safe to say that perceptions about female sexuality and empowerment have been misconstrued and straight up dismissed by men since forever. It's just unfortunate Viva's own Bob Guccione, porn mogul and publisher of one of the first erotic women's magazines, was just as clueless as the rest of them. But when I started Viva, I thought I knew everything there was to know about women. I thought I was the smartest guy in the world as far as women were concerned. I learned as a result of that experience, as a result of working deeply with women, that I didn't begin to know them, nor does any other man I know. But what were these misunderstood women of Viva trying to say with their feminist porn magazine? And could they actually pull it off? From Crooked Media and iHeart Media, I'm Jennifer Romolini, and this is Stiffed, Episode 1, Good Girls Walk Into a Porn Magazine. Act 1, The First Word. The first time I ever saw Viva magazine was in the mid-2000s. Back then, I was working as a mid-level editor at a popular Condé Nast women's magazine called Lucky, sitting at a desk just a few floors down from Vogue. Before Lucky, I'd worked in junior positions at Glamour and Cosmo. And women's magazines were then, and had always been, messy. A lot of putting lipstick on the internalized misogyny pig. A lot of exclusionary, self-esteem-eroding word salads that were beneath all of us, even if we didn't really know we deserved better at the time. But when I discovered Viva, I discovered that things hadn't always been this way. And I was surprised to find out that this revolutionary, cool, progressive women's porn magazine all seemed to have started with a man. Bob Guccione the famous founder of the men's magazine, Penthouse. I became very interested in what was happening on the newsstands, and I saw that Playboy was the only men's magazine of its kind, and it occurred to me in a very simplistic way that um, one might produce the British answer to Playboy. I had no ideas in the beginning that I would ever take this magazine to the United States. That's Bob again on Nightwatch, describing why he first decided to create Penthouse. As you heard, he came up with the idea while living in London with his family. At the time, he's just a family man with a big idea. But once he actually finishes the first physical issue of Penthouse magazine... It wasn't until I actually held the first issue in my hand and looked at it and said to myself, my God, this is something special, this is something great. Mm. And at that moment in time, as it came off the press, the first bound copy, I looked at it and I said, I'm going to take this to America. Enter a young, aspiring magazine editor named Gay Bryant. I'd gotten this job as the first, literally the first employee of Penthouse in the United States. You might know Gay Bryant now for her work as the former editor-in-chief of popular women's magazines like Mirabella, Working Woman, and Family Circle, or for popularizing the term glass ceiling to describe barriers women face in their careers. But before all that, back in the 60s, Gay's just a girl in her 20s with big career dreams even if she's not entirely sure how to make them happen. I grew up uh, in a time in England where you really sort of expected to get married, and that was about it. But I did like writing. Being a nice English, well-brought-up English girl, I was just sort of quiet, and I learned fast, and, and I just absorbed it all. In other words, I was 
I was nice, well-behaved, and a good listener. That was the secret of my success. When Gay meets Bob Guccione, she's just a junior copy editor, freelancing for Penthouse UK before Bob offers her a big opportunity. It's her first break. Hey, uh, we're thinking of starting up in, in America, and if you get there, maybe you can get a job. So Gay moves to New York City to be the editor of Penthouse US in the fall of 1969. She'd never been to America before, and she knew almost no one. But her new job at Penthouse kept her busy. I was literally the only employee, so I did everything. You had to know how to do covers that made guys pick up the magazine and pay their money, and you had to learn how to get advertising. You had to learn the business. Gay starts as a penthouse employee, but she's there for the beginning of Viva. And even though she's one of the only people present at Viva's start, you wouldn't know this because her name is strangely nowhere on Viva's first masthead. It's an oversight that will turn out to be likely very intentional, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. When Gay first arrives in New York, this buttoned-up English girl is thrust, no pun, into an entirely new world. But like she said, she's a fast learner. She adapts quickly. And how did being a nice, a nice girl, how did that go along with working at a porn magazine? How did you, how did you negotiate that? I think I bought the line that it wasn't really a porn magazine. It was a new product tackling the market. And it was part of a, like a David and Goliath battle in the magazine newsstand world. The Goliath here's Playboy run by Bob's arch nemesis, Hugh Hefner. In the early 70s, the porn landscape is still mainly limited to two men's magazines, Playboy, the reliable old timer, and Penthouse, the scrappy upstart. In fact, Playboy's around for almost two decades before Bob comes along with Penthouse. For a long time, it was the only game in town. Here's Bob. Playboy had been so successful for so long that they didn't recognize the possibility of a threat. They didn't recognize any any kind of competition. Playboy was locked into a situation governed and controlled by its advertisers. I didn't have any advertisers when I came to the market, so I had nobody to bow to or kowtow to. I did what I felt was necessary and what was right. And what Bob thought was right? Publishing a magazine that was much more explicit than Playboy. Playboy came out of the conservative 50s, It had an old-fashioned, gentlemanly vibe, was widely considered respectable pornography, just some preppy, naughty, boys-being-boys stuff. And one big reason for this was Hugh Hefner never showed full frontal nudes. But Bob Guccione's whole sex vibe is much more naturalistic than Hef's. He's not into this sanitized sexual innuendo. He's over Americans' hang-ups about bodies and sex. Here he is explaining in an interview on Arlene Herson's cable access show in the 80s. I determined by myself that it was wrong to publish pictures of girls where, where you didn't see the, the pubis, because that is, to me, one of the most beautiful parts of a woman's body. And I felt that the world should look at it that way. And so we did it. We took the step. It was daring at the time, I suppose, but I really wasn't afraid of what I was doing. I thought I was doing the right thing, and I was prepared to defend that position. But maybe more than anything, 
Bob sees more graphic nudity as a smart business move. He thinks he can beat Hefner by going bigger, by showing more. I knew then and there with that first issue that I'd come to America with it and that I would do battle with Playboy and that I would eventually take the market. So Bob shows pubic hair in Penthouse basically from the jump, setting off a public battle that Hef aptly deemed the pubic wars. Penthouse shows pubic hair, Playboy shows pubic hair. Penthouse shows labia, Playboy shows labia. And then, well, on it goes. So Bob's image is sleazy Lothario, but in reality, he's a hyper-ambitious workaholic. He works tirelessly on Penthouse, and it shows. Its U.S. circulation numbers grow to millions within months. It sells out in newsstands that carry it, and it is quickly one of the biggest magazine success stories of all time. It's a cash cow that, unlike its competitors, is run on a shoestring, which makes it even more of a cash cow. And though Gay Bryant was hired on as the editor, she picks up quick to Bob's business savvy. And in early 1973, after four years working for Bob and helping him build Penthouse, I began to think, gee, you know, why can't women who are now part of the sexual revolution and the women's movement and so on, why can't they have a magazine like this for them? Kay Bryant suddenly had a magazine idea of her own. And she shares it with her male colleague at Penthouse. I went and talked to Ernie, the publishing expert there, And I said, you know, I think uh, the company should do a magazine for women, a sexy magazine. It's time. And he said, yeah, great idea. Why don't you write up a proposal and I'll pass it up to Bob. Gay's excited. She gets to work right away. She's got lots of ideas. I wrote up the proposal. I called it Mia because at the time Mia Farrow was like cool and intelligence and all those things. I gave it to Ernie. Ernie gave it, well, I don't know. I guess Ernie gave it to Bob. Nothing, nothing. And by the time Gay hears back, well, the magazine she pitched is about to get greenlit, but not necessarily in the way she might have hoped. Act two, an unexploited resource. Here's the thing. Gay Bryant wasn't the only woman working for Penthouse and coming up with big, innovative ideas for Bob. And we'll get back to her magazine proposal and the response to it in just a minute. But first, it's important to talk about Bob and his hiring practices. Because for the time, they were pretty unique. In the early 70s, Bob Guccione hired tons of women. He hired them, he promoted them, he gave them big titles. In 1974, you either went to Ms. Magazine or you went to Penthouse because there was no other place that was hiring women. That's a former Penthouse executive named Nancy LeWinter speaking in the 2013 Bob Guccione documentary, Filthy Gorgeous. She's talking about magazine publicity and advertising, but this applied to editorial too. Here's Bob's partner, Kathy Keaton, from the same documentary. Bob Guccione was very smart. He understood that women were an an unexploited resource. (laughs) 
Hiring women was something Bob was known for, a big deal, something he bragged about all the time. This is Bob again on Nightwatch in his interview with Christopher Glenn. You have um, some rather high-ranking officers of your um, your organization are, are women, are they not? Yes. In fact, the three highest-paid individuals are women, and we have many more women executives than we have men. And this is done simply because I think they do a better job. Mm-hmm. And Guccione may have thought that women did a better job, but that didn't mean he always let them do it. And if he didn't let them do their jobs, if he sidelined them or took credit for their work, The women who worked for Bob Guccione, well, they had little recourse. Remember, this is the 70s, and the professional landscape for women is not great. Yes, we're in the middle of the women's liberation movement. It's a time of radical progressive change for women, sure. But women still can't apply for a loan or get credit cards in their own name. And sexual harassment is rampant in most industries, more the rule than the exception. So women who wanted to work at this time often took what they could get. Working for a porn king like Bob Guccione, who gave them opportunities, was often worth the price of admission. I started uh, working at Penthouse, actually, when I was 17 as a temporary secretary during the summer between high school and college. My very first job, except for babysitting, but yeah. That's Robin Walliner. Robin's a former executive at CNET and the founder of Parenting Magazine. You can imagine the reactions of my parents um, to their 17-year-old daughter working at this place. Parent approval or no, working at Penthouse is the job that helps put Robin through college. But while Robin is finishing her degree at Cornell and working part-time at Penthouse, Gay Bryant is running Penthouse's editorial and waiting to hear back about her new magazine idea. And Future Viva editor Pat Linden's a fresh-faced young reporter, a Berkeley graduate, working her first magazine job. The first time I spoke with Pat, it was over the phone. So I went to work for Newsweek, and I was thrilled at some $54 a week for six months until, and I was told, this is a really good job for a woman. At Newsweek, Pat's hired as a, quote, editorial assistant, but she's doing a lot more. She reports on local and national politics, establishes high-level sources, and even breaks stories. But she's forced to give those stories to established male journalists, men who get the bylines and all the credit for her work, for all the female reporters at Newsweek's work. We decided that we wanted to get recognized on the masthead for what we were doing. We didn't want to be called editorial assistants anymore. And we wanted to be writers, correspondents, that sort of thing. Pat's a key witness in a landmark gender discrimination suit against Newsweek case brought by 46 of the magazine's female journalists that changes publishing workplaces forever. A case that inspires the book Good Girls Revolt that was later turned into the 2015 TV show of the same name. Women like Pat and Robin and Gay are all trying to sort out who they are, both professionally and personally. Here's Pat again, this time not over the phone. We had no idea what we were going to do or if we were going to do anything. But we started going to these consciousness-raising groups. Consciousness-raising groups, literally groups of women sitting around and talking without men, were incredibly popular with second-wave feminists in the late 60s and early 70s. Particularly in New York, women would sit around, network, bitch, and share stories 
about being moms, their careers, and their sex lives openly in ways they hadn't before. And it's not just Pat attending. Gay Bryant belongs to a women's consciousness-raising group, too. And on one summer night in 1973, she's got a lot to talk about, a lot to unload. Remember Gay's big magazine proposal? Well, after months, she's finally got an update. And it's from Nora Ephron, of all people. Yes, that Nora Ephron, the one behind When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, Feeling Bad About Her Neck. I open up New York Magazine, and Bob Guccione is telling, I think it was Nora Ephron, in an interview about how he was going to start a really cool new erotic um, magazine for women. Bob doesn't say the name of the magazine, but for Gay, this announcement is awfully coincidental, suspiciously so. Gay's sure Bob is screwing her over, stealing her idea. Cut a long story short, I uh, was pretty pissed off. So I was in some consciousness-raising group with other female writers and editors, and I told them the story, and I told them how outrageous it was. Gay's venting, and like anyone who's had a man or any boss take credit for their idea, she's flooded with rage, incensed. And one of them called Nora, and Nora interviewed me, and that too appeared in New York Magazine, saying I had had the idea. But not everyone agrees with Gay's account. It was entirely his idea and his title. The title's great. Okay, so a big voice missing from this series is Bob Guccione. He unfortunately passed away in 2010. But we did have the privilege of speaking to his son, Bob Guccione Jr. It was there at the beginning Mm -hmm. as he was thinking it through. But he felt that women wanted the same kind of a magazine that men wanted. Bob Jr. is one of the few people still alive who worked at Viva from the start. He'd go on to have his own successful career in publishing as the founder and publisher of the music magazine Spin. But in the 70s, Bob Jr. is a teenager. And Viva magazine? Well, it's his first job. And as far as he's concerned, it was his dad's creation. You know, he named it. He named it. He he just came up with the name. Uh, He was Italian. Viva means life in Italian. And um, he, you know, drew a logo on on a notepad, and the magazine came from there. Now, we can't know for sure who invented the magazine. I'm inclined to believe Gay, though to be fair, Bob's ultimate decision to greenlight Viva may have come from a desire to keep pace with Hugh Hefner. Playgirl launched just a few months before Viva. Whatever the case, the seed of Viva is now out there. But after spilling the beans to Nora, Gay's filled with insecurity over her decision to talk. I do remember having that feeling of, oh my God, what have I done? And to my uh, eternal shame, I went to Bob and apologized and said, of course I'm dead. Of course I didn't really mean that. And of course uh, it's your magazine. And I quit. So Gay quits in... Let's just call it really misplaced shame. And Bob moves on finishing Viva's first issue without her. Here's an excerpt from Bob's editor's letter in Viva Magazine's first issue, read by writer and podcast host Alex Papadimus. You'll hear him read Bob throughout this series, so thank you, Alex. The magazine you hold in your hands is my newborn child. Fragile, undisciplined, painfully vulnerable. 
Bob's editor's letters become a regular column in Viva called The First Word. And in his first words here, Bob's introducing his Viva to the world. The first issue is published in October of 1973. And even today, it's a visual standout. The cover is a full bleed shot, an extreme soft focus close-up of a woman's face in profile. Her blue eyeshadowed eyes closed in ecstasy, her coral lipsticked lips parted in a provocative pout, a pink tongue jutting out just a bit. Across the top of the model's face is the Viva logo, bold white in a font that screams 70s, the letters made from a series of thin, vertical, somehow disco-y lines. It's a beautiful magazine, and Bob Guccione was at the top of it all. Viva is Bob Guccione Sr.'s baby, in a way he writes about literally. Here's his editor's letter again. This child of love is my child, and I want to see her grow and have all the advantages and success that love and attention can provide. Next to this letter is a picture of Bob himself. He's 43 here and artfully lit. He looks sensitive, pensive, a thinking man's pornographer. I want to watch her develop firm young limbs and a fine, strong posture. I want to see her acquire the sort of education that promotes knowledgeable opinions, bold, positive attitudes toward life and love and sex, and that creates, above all, character and personality. Just to be clear, because it's not so much from his editor's letter, Bob was making a magazine for adult women, not unformed baby ladies. And he was also making an erotic magazine for grown women who loved men. But what did he serve up? Well, a lot of vulva and naked breasts. There's a 15-page centerfold where a mustachioed man and a brunette woman in a bonnet cosplay as old-timey people on a picnic. A picnic where all they seem to be serving is the woman's naked body. This issue also serves up a quick hit piece on Jane Fonda and a comic strip called The Little Hooker, where a skinny blonde woman with big tits engages in sex with a bear. Oh, and Bob made some interesting choices when it came to who would be writing for Viva, too. Here's the lineup. White male novelist J.P. Donlevy. And I sometimes do uh, profess the actual facts of one's existence. White male political reporter Tom Wicker. Press will uh, relapse into that more quiescent mood once the current uh, fad for investigative journalism that stems out of uh, Watergate. White male photojournalist Eddie Adams. Uh, when I did the picture, I stopped back at the AP office and I handed him this roll of film. And I said, I think I got somebody killing somebody. And I went out to lunch. It was that simple. White male essayist slash known misogynist Norman Mailer. And there is an element in woman's liberation that terrifies me. It terrifies me because it's humorless, because with the exception, let's say, of Germaine Greer's book, there's been almost no recognition that the life of a man is also difficult. Here's what Gay thought when she first saw it. Viva was always a man's idea of what women wanted. And I don't believe that they really knew what women wanted. Viva was Bob's creation alone, and he wants the world to know it. It's all pretty gross, 
particularly for Gay, who'd had a very different vision for this magazine. But to Gay's credit, she quickly moves on. She starts her own magazine called New Dawn, a Viva competitor. She's a big-name editor and writer for decades. She's okay. But hearing Gay's story and now knowing where it ends, it all makes sense. This was a messy beginning to a messy magazine in a messy time. And the women who would become involved in trying to grow Viva as an intelligent, sexy magazine for other women, they were up against it from the beginning. Nora Ephron slams Viva's first issue in New York Magazine with a review titled Guccione's Ms. Print. She blames Bob for all of it, including stealing Gay's idea. Here's my producer, Megan Donis, reading Nora's piece. The original concept of Viva was a woman's. Guccione claims otherwise. Claims that the concrete idea for Viva hit him like some transcendental bolts last year on a transatlantic plane. But the actual product, in fact, came from a Viva editor named Gay Bryant, who wrote a 50-page outline proposing an erotic, general interest magazine for intelligent women. Guccione adopted Bryant's idea and added a couple Phillips of his own. The name, the logo, and most important, the overall tone. It's a tone Nora and turns out a lot of people hate. A tone that Bob couldn't necessarily control since, well, it was his own. Here's Bob Jr. again. The entire thing was through his lens rather than a woman's lens. And that was a mistake. But you can understand why Bob Sr. would make this kind of mistake. He's just off the biggest career win of his life. The success of Penthouse is unimpeachable. And like many founders of mega-successful things, Bob Sr. now thinks his instincts are unimpeachable, too. Penthouse was such a fantastic success because it was an update on Playboy, the more modern, um, the more authentic, uh, real uh, magazine about men's lives in the uh, late 60s and the 70s. Viva was intended to be the woman's version of that. So he traded the magazine, he thought it through, he believed in that concept and that vision at the time, and he was going to execute it. And the truth was that even with Bob's shadow hanging over it, some women in media were happy to see Viva come into existence at all. A feminist erotica magazine marked progress, no matter who was making it. There was a need for a magazine like Viva, a hole in the marketplace. So Bob Sr.'s instincts are not all wrong. After Viva's first issue, after Nora Ephron's complaints, he starts to hire highbrow female writers, female sex therapists, and eventually editors and writers with serious journalistic cred, including Pat. I mean, Newsweek was a a real place. You know, it was a place where it was like boot camp, and the standards were very high. Pat was a bona fide journalist who knew her value. But after the Newsweek case... She didn't know where to go next. So she started networking, kicking the professional tires, meeting up with other female journalists. I can't remember her last name. And I think she was also from Ms. And we were talking, walking down the street, and I told her I was interested in leaving. She said, oh, well, I know the perfect place for you. And that was Viva. Somebody had said that, um, you know, somebody, some pornographer was running it. I wouldn't have gone there. But these were bona fide feminists, right? As for Robin, after working as a secretary at Penthouse, the choice to move over to Viva was easy. She knew Bob paid. I got a living wage at Viva, and 
I was quite proud to work for Viva because we saw the, the, the version of Viva that I worked for. We were going to be the intelligent woman's Cosmo. And here's Pat. Kathy Keaton had come up with a motto for Viva, which she was using in advertisements, and it was, the Viva woman lives the life that the Cosmo girl only dreams about. And we thought, well, that's kind of cute. And even Nora Ephron's mostly scathing review of Bob's first issue offers both Viva and its female editors some hope. Here's Megan reading Nora again. I realize I'm treating Viva as if it were a failure. That, to be sure, is premature and wishful thinking. Viva may well succeed, may find some formula that works. But did Viva need a new formula? Or did it need a new leader? Could Bob Guccione be trusted to raise this female newborn magazine child on his own? We're about to find out. Stift is an original podcast from iHeartMedia and Crooked Media. It's produced by Crooked Media. It's hosted and written by me, Jennifer Romolini, and produced by Megan Donis. Sydney Rapp is our associate producer. Story editing by Mary Knopf. Music, sound design, and engineering by Hannes Brown. Our fact checker is Julia Paskin. Additional production support from Nafala Cato and Inez Maza. Thanks to Alex Papadimus for reading the voice of Bob Guccione. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Sarah Geismer, Katie Long, and Mary Knopf, with special thanks to Allison Falzetta and Lyra Smith. From iHeartMedia, our executive producers are Beth Ann Macaluso and Julia Weaver. <laughs> 